Humane Nature is an animal tourism podcast with discussions of animal abuse, injury, and medicine. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Humane Nature. I am your host, Stacia, um, and I have a very special episode for you guys today. It has been a while since we've done um, a wildlife warrior segment where we sit and chat about uh, an individual who has contributed a lot to wildlife conservation or, you know, something else involving wildlife or, or animal tourism. Um, so I really like to point out and celebrate those people. And uh, today it is June 21st. So we're reaching the end of Pride Month. And I love Pride Month. I love the month of June. I love it. Um, I am part of the the Rainbow Posse, the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and I am an avid supporter of, of my fellow people <laughs> in in um, this community. So uh, whether you're involved in the community or you're just an ally, a supporter, welcome. And we are going to be talking about um, some LGBTQIA members who are wildlife warriors. So we're going to really highlight them today. Uh, but first for some news. So I don't know if y'all are following me on Instagram, but I would like to announce some personal news for you guys. Um, we did get our poison dart frogs. Um, my husband built a very stunning bioactive enclosure and which means that, um, it's not just like a, a, you know, tank with frogs in it. It's um, completely self-sustaining um, other than us feeding the frogs. So um, it's got, you know, soil on the bottom um, and in the soil live some like roly polies and these little tiny bugs um, called springtails. And the springtails and the roly polies act as kind of like a cleanup crew. So they clean up. They, they eat and digest and clean up um, decaying matter, mold, and um, the frog droppings. So we don't have to clean up after the frogs. Um, the bugs just kind of take care of that. And they don't get out. They are very, very happy in the soil in their own enclosure. So um, they love it in there. And uh, we've got some live plants planted in there as well. And the live plants take up the nutrients that are digested by the bugs. So, um, and yeah, so the, uh, the bugs will eat, uh, dead decaying parts of the plants that fall off and then the bug droppings become fertilizer for the plants. So that's a cycle. And, um, now we have three blue poison dart frogs. Um, they're also known as blue poison arrow frogs. They're beautiful. Um, we named them Brittany, Cher, and Christina. Uh, three very uh, great gay icons and in, in, uh, in pop music. And they're amazing. They're so cool. Uh, we were very worried that they would be 
kind of shy and be hiding all the time, but they are very active, very much in the foreground of the enclosure. We see them all the time and they are still just babies. So we don't know their gender and we don't or their sex. Um, Yeah, we don't know their biological sex. And uh, so but we're going to keep their names no matter what they turn out to be. And um, I'm very excited to get, get to watch them grow. Um, and I know a lot of you guys are probably wondering, like, how we can keep poison dart frogs because they're, you know, supposed to be poisonous. Um, poison dart frogs are very, very poisonous in the wild, um, which is why they have those vivid colors. But they do lose their toxicity in captivity due to a drastic change in their diet. So scientists are still not really sure exactly which bug or which bugs if it's multiple um, in the wild where they live in northern Brazil in the rainforest there um, caused them to become so toxic but in captivity we feed them um, flightless fruit flies and you know kind of doused with calcium powder which is what you're supposed to give um, most amphibian and reptile pets and they also like to snack on the springtails that they find within the enclosure and because they're eating the springtails and the um, fruit flies they are I don't want to say they're non-toxic because every frog is a little you know poisonous Um, you shouldn't you know be sticking your fingers in your mouth if if you handle them Um, but they are not the highly toxic beings that they are in the wild. So that's news on me. Let's talk about um, this one thing of travel news that I found um, a little disturbing. So the human rights group Amnesty International did issue a renewed travel advisory to the United States due to repeated gun violence. And this did occur after the shootings at um, the elementary school in Texas and the Buffalo, New York supermarket about a month ago. Um, and we've had 246 mass shootings in the United States in 2022 as of June 5th. So a couple of weeks from today, um, and a mass shooting is four or more people killed or injured by the same shooter, not including the shooter themselves. So, Um, It is a vastly growing problem in the United States. And although the U.S. is still considered like a low risk country to visit, um, not no risk because there are like a very like minimal risk countries um, such as Iceland and um, countries in Scandinavia. But we are uh, still considered a low risk um, category for travel, but they are considering raising that. And uh, we do have a uh, travel advisory against us due to this. And I wanted to share some pride news for Pride Month. Um, neither of these are good. Um, so Japan has voted to uphold the ban on same-sex marriage this week, which is a really awful blow um, as much as I love Japan and Japanese culture and things like their food and anime. And, you know, I desperately want to go visit Japan. I am extremely disappointed that they decided to uphold the ban on same-sex marriage there. And all across the United States the last month, there have been multiple violent attacks at Pride events. Um, Many of them done by, like, white supremacy groups. Many of them being spurred on by uh, right-wing 
people all over the country, especially in the South. So if you guys are celebrating Pride, I know a lot of the actual Pride parades are at the end of the month. Just please be safe. Um, go with a go with a friend. Go with a buddy if you can, and uh, you know report anything suspicious that you may be seeing there. Okay, so for some wildlife news, a recent study shows that uglier, quote unquote, fish are more likely to be threatened or endangered. So this is not uh, just fish. So this recent study was just was focused on fish, but they have known for quite a while that um, mammals and other cute species um, and cute animals are more likely to gain environmental conservation attention compared to animals that have, you know, less aesthetic preference to our human eyes, <laughs> the, the ugly species, and especially reptiles, amphibians, and fish. So cute mammals are much, much, much more likely to gain... Um, you know, protections and awareness and all these things compared to a fish or a snake, especially if that fish or snake or amphibian or whatever it is, um, is considered ugly even by their own um, genus. Uh, the study also shows that ugly fish are typically more evolutionary unique, both in evolutionary history and their role in the ecosystem, which is very interesting to me. So the more ugly an animal is, um, especially in fish, uh, that may show that they have more of a unique genetic and evolutionary history and they have a more specific role in their local ecosystem. So, um, second, we have toxic lead left behind. Lead shot in game hunting is in the UK is killing around 100,000 birds a year. So uh, these birds will eat um, birds and other animals, but this study was focused on birds. They do eat the toxic spent shells. So shells are left behind and birds and other animals will eat them. And they do have actual lead in them so these animals get lead poisoning those who survive can suffer prolonged issues from lead poisoning including inability to breed and becoming more susceptible to disease so this could be a really big issue especially with birds um, like predatory birds who are one who could be eating the shells directly and two could be eating other infected animals that are their prey so this could also be hurting humans through the environment and through game meat as well. So we could be suffering from some lead poisoning from this as well, but that does need some more study to it. Finally, um, California officials are discussing listing the famous Joshua tree as threatened to protect it from housing and energy products. So, or products, projects, sorry. So uh, Joshua tree is... A species of tree that lives throughout southern and central California. It's beautiful. It's, you know, one of the things that California is really known for, at least um, in the nature aspect. And they have an entire, you know, national park named after them, the Joshua Tree National Park over in California. And while they're not, um, their numbers are dwindling due to, um, housing being built, um, energy products such as like putting up solar panels, which would be great, um, but they are tearing down a lot of these Joshua trees to do so. So officials are trying to 
um, list them as threatened in order to protect them from becoming endangered in the future due to these due to these projects. As a budget traveler, finding affordable yet safe accommodation while traveling can be daunting. There have literally been horror movies made about bad hostels and hotels. I always use Hostel World to book my hostels around the world. With over 36,000 listed hostels in 180 countries around the world and 13 million verified reviews, I can trust that whatever room I book through Hostel World will be clean, affordable, and most importantly, safe. Book your first hostel with Hostel World using the link in the description. If you're a frequent traveler, you need a travel credit card that works for you. I love my Chase Sapphire Preferred card because I earn miles by making my everyday purchases in two to five times the miles on travel purchases. I can book flights for a discount directly through the Chase app using the miles I have earned, allowing me to fly for free. Earn 50,000 miles when you sign up through the link in the description and even more bonus miles after spending $4,000 in the first three months of your card. That's over $2,000 worth of travel miles. Where will you fly for free with your miles? Okay, so let's get to it and talk about some uh, people, some LGBTQIA plus wildlife warriors. And um, I'm going to list these. There are four of them. I'm going to list them um, in the order um, in which they lived. Um, so oldest to, to youngest, I suppose. So first off, we have Francis Benjamin Johnston, um, who lived from 1864 to 1952. And I am going to use they, them pronouns for Francis because, uh, I, I'll let you know in just a minute, but just so you know, I'm going to use they, them pronouns. So not a ton is known about Johnston. Um, though, they had a huge impact on um, on conservation efforts. Johnston was the only surviving child of a wealthy couple in Washington, D.C. Um, in 1864 and uh, became one of the United States first photographer, like professional photographers and photojournalists and was the very first woman to do so. So um, Johnston was very highly educated for women at the time. Um, they did go to college. They uh, were a college graduate and were trained in photography and darkroom techniques by Thomas Smilly. Um, I, I believe I'm saying that properly, um, who was the director of phot photography at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. So Johnston photographed multiple presidential families, um, they photographed black and indigenous workers, which was really uncommon at the time. And, uh, they also had various untraditional female portraits. These included self-portraits. Um, they really loved to do self-portraits and, uh, they took pictures of themselves in male drag, uh, which was extremely uncommon at the time and unladylike portraits with their skirts hoisted, a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And they did call this photo 
um, New Woman um, in 1896. And I will post that photo in my Instagram for you guys to see. It's also on my website. So um, I'm a little obsessed with this portrait. It's really great. But the reason I am using they, them pronouns for Johnston is uh, because of the fact that they did dress in male drag. And they never married. They never showed any interest in dating men. Um, and due to the male drag, especially for the time period, uh, we just don't know if, you know, they were actually trans. Like, I I'm not saying that um, every female-bodied person who has done male drag is transgendered, but um, I just wanted to try to be respectful of Johnston and use they, them pronouns for, for this episode. Um, so Johnston's most notable work was the first clear photographical evidence of the famous Mammoth Cave in Kentucky in 1891. And I have visited Mammoth Cave. It's absolutely incredible. I do encourage you guys to visit. Um, it is the world's largest cave system right in Kentucky. <laughs> so these 25 photos were featured in uh, Johnston's article called Mammoth Cave by Flashlight, which was highly praised around the world. And um, I'll include one of those photos as well. So um, again, it is unknown exactly what Johnston's sexual or gender orientation was, uh, which is why I am choosing to use they, them pronouns. They never married, which was highly unusual for the time. And they did not appear to have any romantic relationships with men. However, their most notable relationship was with a woman named Maddie Edwards Hewitt, who lived with them and worked with them for a quite long time. Um, but historians argue that they were simply, quote, close friends. I don't know if you can hear my eyes rolling, um, but why I don't know why historians um, always argue that women living together, especially in those time periods um, when they didn't have husbands, um, they're, they're just good friends. You know, they're just best friends. I don't think so. Okay, so next we have um, Miss Rachel Carson, who lived between 1907 to 1964. So Rachel Carson was a U.S. marine biologist, conservationist, and author. They were, or she was born on a farm in Pennsylvania and began writing at a very young age. Had actually had her very first story published at the age of ten, which is awesome. Carson mostly wrote about animals. Um, she received her bachelor's in biology, a master's in zoology, and was on her way to get her doctorate when the Great Depression hit. So she never got her doctorate. Um, she returned home during the Great Depression to help out her family. And uh, while she was helping her family, she began writing and recording multiple weekly broadcasts for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, um, which is now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, called um, Romance Under the Waters. And she discussed um, our beaches and our oceans and um, really got people connected to ocean life and, and, and fish and wildlife in the water. <laughs> Carson later became chief editor at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1949 and conducted multiple oceanic field research um, projects throughout her life. She met her literary agent, Marie Rodell, in 1948, whom she had a very close professional relationship with um, for the rest of her writing career. Um, it is unknown whether... 
Carson and Rodell um, had a physical or romantic relationship, but they were extremely close um, and had a very close professional relationship at the very least. Rodell helped publish some of Carson's most notable books, such as The Sea Around Us, The Edge of the Sea, and Under the Sea Wind. Um, And this is a trilogy. It explores the whole um, of ocean life from shores to deep waters. Um, And I will uh, link these books in the description of today's episode if you want to check them out. Uh, Later, Carson also published Silent Spring, which brought national attention to the U.S.'s use of synthetic pesticides and sparked social movements in the 1960s. So she really put on blast the use of uh, pesticides um, and and runoff in our waterways and how that could be affecting us and our wildlife. Um, And she did that in the late 1950s. Uh, Carson did have a secret romantic relationship with a woman named Dorothy Freeman in which they mainly communicated through letters. Over the course of 12 years, um, the two mostly spoke um, through letters and then they would meet up like um, every summer um, when they both visited the same kind of beach area. So over 12 years, the two had exchanged over 900 letters. Um, They're not sure actually like the exact number because many of them were destroyed. Um, Many of these letters were later published in the book called Always Rachel, which I will link in the description um, after her death. Carson would send Freeman two letters at a time, uh, a friendly one that was kind of like, hey girl, you know, we're close friends. This is what's going on in my life um, to show her husband. And then an intimate one in which she professed her love and to her, which was meant to be destroyed um, in order to protect um, Dorothy. So after Carson's death, um, Dorothy Freeman would receive half of her ashes and scattered them along the coast in Sheepscot Bay, Maine, which was one of uh, Carson's favorite places to go. Next, we have Dr. Clyde Warhoftif, and I believe I'm saying that right. It is W-A-H-R-H-A-F-T-I-F. Dr. Clyde Warhaftif, um, and he lived from 1919 and passed away in 1994. So Dr. Clyde Warhaftif was an American geologist, professor at University of California, Berkeley, and an environmentalist and a very active LGBTQIA leader known for his field. And he was known um, in his professional career for his field guides um, to the geology of the San Francisco Bay Area. He earned his bachelor's and doctorate in geology, um, working most of his life in Alaska with the U.S. Geology, geological Survey, but also worked in the Sierra Nevada and the California Coast Ranges. So he pretty much never stopped working as soon as he got that doctorate. Dr. Warhaftif worked closely with the U.S. National Park System to improve their understanding of geological features in the Golden Gate National Recreational Area and Yosemite National Park. And his work in Yosemite um, was did not conclude until well after his death, um, but he knew he was not going to be around long enough to really finish it because it was so in-depth um, and, and very intense, but he began it and um, he is credited with that. Uh, though he was closeted for most of his life, Dr. Warhaftif came out publicly in 1989 and uh, so only five years before he passed away 
and pushed for more LGBTQIA representation and inclusion in science. He also worked to create more opportunities for people of color in geology. So he would hire um, people of color um, when he could in his field, which is amazing. He was also part of the very first wave of scientists to discuss the effect of climate change in the 1960s. Dr. Warhaftif met his uh, life partner, Dr. Alan Cox, while they were both doing field research in Alaska, so they were both geologists. Their combined research, called Rock Glaciers in the Alaskan Range, spurred further study in the area. They worked together for the majority of the rest of Dr. Warhaftif's life. So they worked together and they were um, romantic partners, and I absolutely love that for them. Dr. Clyde Warhaftif quite honestly, did more for environmentalism and activism than I can really even include. Um, I may do uh, a full-blown episode on him. Um, if you just Google him, he has done so, so much for um, geology. He's done a lot for um, activism, both in um, like Black Lives Matter movements, although it wasn't called that at the time. Um, he worked a lot for people of color. He worked a lot for, um, to get people in science, um, or get people within the LGBTQIA community, um, more active in science and more respected and more, um, accepted for who they were. Finally, um, this is our one LGBTQIA warrior who um, is still with us, and he is very much still active to this day, uh, David Misajewski. Um, so Misajewski is a naturalist, TV personality, and spokesperson for the National Wildlife Federation. Um, you may recognize him from his frequent appearance, appearances on talk shows such as Good Morning America, Conan, Today, and others as a wildlife expert. He hosted multiple TV shows, included, including Animal Planet's Backyard Habitat, National Geographic's Pet Talk, and my personal favorite, Unlikely Animal Friends. Um, I love that show. So cute. He's awesome. Um, he has also worked as a wildlife consultant for motion picture movies, such as Hoot, which was one of my absolute favorites as a kid, The Chronicles of Narnia, and Where the Wild Things Are. He's even been featured on RuPaul's Drag Race, which awesome. <laughs> um, when Misajewski first started his career, um, he was not out publicly. Um, he was out within his family and his close friends, um, but not publicly as a, as a professional. However, he was given the honor of being on Out Magazine's Out 100 list in 2005. By accepting this honor, he chose to make the fact that he is gay public knowledge and part of his professional identity. And we celebrate him for that. Thank you, David. Mitsujewski is still working together today, sorry, still working today as an advocate for wildlife and teaching others to respect the nature and animals around them. All right. So uh, today is going to be a bit of a shorter episode than usual. Um, I just really wanted to get this out for pride. Um, be sure to reach out to someone um, and, and let them know that you're thinking about them this month. And whether you are out or whether you are still closeted for whatever reason that may be, I see you and I love you and I am celebrating you today as well. So stay safe this month, you guys, and I will hear you in two weeks. <laughs>